invite you to turn to the passage we read, Isaiah 53. And my text is in verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's the phrase I want to focus on this morning. He was numbered with the transgressors. We often say that a person is known by the company he keeps, uh, and that is generally true. It's also generally true that we are influenced by the company we keep. Uh, and that's certainly uh, underscored in the Scriptures. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So the company we keep does generally affect us. And again, 1 Corinthians 15.33, Bad company ruins good morals. Good to remember that, boys and girls. I know you've going to have some contact with those who are not uh, uh, good, not decent in their living, but uh, we spend too much time with those people. We can be affected by them, and uh, it can do us a great deal of uh, harm. Now, there's one great exception to this, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he was numbered with the transgressors, uh, but his being among them, being numbered with them, was often misunderstood, and he was often accused. Look at the company he keeps. Look at the kind of people he, he, he mixes with. Um, but it's a wonderful thing for us that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Let's look at the, uh, the statement there. Uh, it could be better translated, he let himself be numbered with the transgressors. The idea is that there was a, a voluntary identification with sinners. There were the sinners. There was Jesus. He was with them. He was numbered among them. He was counted uh, among them. He was identified with them. He was in their company. So how was Jesus identified with sinners? Well, the, the New Testament specifically applies this to his death, uh, but it has a much wider uh, application. Uh, he was numbered with the transgressors in his birth. Jesus' death and resurrection are marvelous indeed. That's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus died, uh, was buried, and rose again. That's the heart of Paul's uh, gospel. But there is, in one sense, something even more amazing, and that is the incarnation. Jesus came in human form. He was born as a baby. The Word became flesh. Almighty God took human form. The Eternal One entered time. The Holy One was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And we have to be very careful how we read that uh, expression in the New Testament, made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, he wasn't sinful. He wasn't sinful in his own practice and behavior, nor was he sinful in the sense that he inherited sin from the fall, as uh, everyone else uh, does. We're, we're, we're 
we're born with sinful natures. And uh, it doesn't take long, does it, even with <laughs> very young children, uh, to see that coming out in uh, various uh, ways. But Jesus was uh, free from that in every way. But yet he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like others who were in uh, sinful flesh. Whether it was a baby or as a man, Jesus didn't look much different from anyone else. Uh, some of you men have sometimes said probably that uh, all babies look the same. Uh, the mothers don't agree with that. Uh, but I'm sure Jesus wasn't uh, exceptionally different in his appearance to any other baby. Uh, if he had been born in a hospital instead of in a, a stable and you saw among maybe dozens of other babies, uh, he wouldn't stand out in any particular way. He uh, was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like other babies. And as a man, the same thing. I'm sure there was a nobility of character. You know, there are some people you see, and you, that person looks like a Christian, don't you? There's a, there's a cleanness, there's a, a, a beauty you see uh, in the face there. Uh, but essentially, Jesus looked the same as anyone else. Uh, he walked amongst people, and uh, uh, he looked like uh, other uh, men. And he identified with other people. He looked very much uh, like them. There's a, a great passage in Hebrews 2 that brings us out well. Hebrews 2 from verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If he had wanted to save angels, he would have uh, become an angel. But no, he was saving men, children of, uh, of Abraham, and therefore he came as a man. Therefore, we see verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So uh, he identified with the, the human race. Uh, he uh, was numbered with the human race. Most of the human race are, are transgressors. He was numbered uh, with the trans transgressors, and especially those here who are called uh, the children, that is, his people, those he came uh, to save. So Jesus was numbered with the transgressors in his birth, but he was numbered with the transgressors in his life. Now we might begin with his baptism. You could say that he was identified in his baptism uh, with a baptism of sinners. Now Jesus was not a sinner, and when he came to John the Baptist and asked John to baptize him, John was shocked. <laughs> he said, I need your baptism. And he'd just been speaking about the baptism of the Spirit. So I think what John is saying there, uh, listen, you, I need your baptism of the Spirit more than you need my baptism of water. And Jesus said, allow it to be for, for now. Uh, what John said was true. Uh, but for now, uh, Jesus wanted to be baptized. And I think probably in, in his baptism, he was setting forth the, the tenor of his ministry. Uh, what does baptism show? It shows death, burial, 
resurrection. And I think right at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is, uh, if you like, giving a, a picture of the essence of what his ministry will be, leading to his death, his burial, and resurrection. Now, it's a, a difficult topic, his baptism, but we, we certainly could say he was uh, identified with sinners in, in a baptism uh, of sinners, even though he wasn't a sinner uh, himself. And then we say Jesus. We see Jesus mixing uh, with sinners in Matthew nine and nine. And Carl preached on this fairly recently from Luke. But we read as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew or Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. And then, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and that we see elsewhere, it was. Uh, Matthew's house, Levi's house, uh, as he uh, reclined uh, at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at the company he keeps, uh, mixing with the riffraff, allowing them to come in and recline at the table Uh, next to him. Uh, That was terrible. Uh, So the Pharisees are saying, look at the company he keeps. Uh, Yes, but it was true. Uh, He did keep company with tax collectors uh, and sinners. Uh, But we have to ask, why did he keep company with tax collectors and sinners? They were considered the the riffraff of society. Tax collectors were notoriously uh, hated, Uh, They were usually dishonest people uh, collecting taxes plus a little more for themselves, uh, for the Romans, uh, and to mix with people like that, Jesus was certainly put down by the the Pharisees. But we ask, why was he with them? Well, not to do their thing. He wasn't saying, now, teach me how to be a tax collector. Teach me how I can make some extra money. There was one reason he was mixing with these people, uh, to bring the gospel to them. That's why he uh, mixed uh, with them. He he loved them as he had with Levi, with Matthew, and he wanted to bring the gospel uh, to them. You notice what he says uh, there. When Jesus heard what they were saying, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means, I desire Mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The reason he was numbered with the transgressors, the reason why he mixed with the riffraff, was to bring them to a knowledge of the gospel, to bring him into the kingdom of God. And Matthew and others were uh, truly uh, converted. So that's why he spent time uh, with these people. Now there's a fine line there, isn't there, for us? We're, we're forbidden uh, in certain scriptures, to have fellowship with unbelievers. And yet we are invited, we are also uh, exhorted, uh, commanded to go and bring the gospel to every creature. Uh, so there's a balance there. We mustn't have fellowship with, uh, with sinners, and yet they need the gospel. Uh, so we have to maintain that uh, difficult balance there of uh, not being drawn into their lifestyle, not being influenced by them uh, for bad. Uh, but to bring the gospel to them, to show them love, uh, to show them the essence of the gospel and bring that word uh, to them. And certainly Jesus was our example uh, there 
uh, not involved in their lifestyle, uh, and yet he had contact. He didn't draw in his skirts. Uh, he was numbered with the transgressors. He mixed with these kinds of people. So, numbered with the transgressors in his birth, numbered with the transgressors in his life, and thirdly, he was numbered with the transgressors in his death. Now, the actual quotation of that is Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. just as they were leaving the upper room. He says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. And of course, he's quoting from that verse uh, we gave in uh, Isaiah 53 uh, and verse uh, 12. He was just leaving the upper room with the disciples. His approaching death was very much on his heart, very much uh, pressing in upon him. Uh, it was just before Gethsemane, and that, of course, was followed very soon afterwards by uh, Calvary. Now, at Calvary, of course, there was a literal fulfillment when he was crucified between two sinners, uh, two robbers, one each side of him there and, and Jesus in the middle. And if you've been a visitor to Jerusalem and you happen to come to that uh, area, uh, you would assume you were seeing there three criminals. It was quite common, as it was in, even in England, for people to be uh, executed publicly. Everyone could see whether people were hanged or burned at the stake, whatever it was. Uh, they used to, crowds used to come in. And uh, the same would be true in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, everyone could see these uh, crucifixions. And if you had been visiting Jerusalem, you saw these three people there, uh, you would assume here are three criminals. Here are three people paying uh, the just desert of their crimes, their uh, sins. And of course, Jesus with the others uh, had been condemned by the Sanhedrin. Probably the other two had to. Uh, Jesus had been condemned, condemned by the multitude. Crucify him, crucify him. He'd be condemned by Pilate, who must have signed his death warrant, condemned to be crucified. The very worst form of execution, one of the most painful and the worst forms of execution reserved for the lowest of societies. If you were a, a Roman citizen, you were exempt from that kind of uh, execution, even if you were put to death. The Apostle Paul uh, was not crucified. He was his head cut off as far as we uh, know. So Jesus, in his death, literally was numbered with the transgressors. He died between two criminals. But there's a much richer meaning to these words. He was numbered with the transgressors in a way that was only seen by God. The purpose of Jesus' ministry was to save his people from their sins. And we should rejoice in that. And that was done by identifying himself with sinners. He identified uh, with them uh, in his uh, life, he took their humanity, and he took their sins during his suffering and death. And when people looked on Jesus on the cross, they saw a sinner. Most people, they saw a sinner there. And the disciples, of course, saw their Savior, who was without sin. They knew that. 
But God saw him with sin. Not his own sin, but the sins of his people. Go back to Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's almost treating iniquity as some material thing that can be laid on Jesus. Of course, that's not true. This is by imputation. Uh, Our sins were imputed to Jesus. He was treated as a sinner. He was punished as a sinner. Our iniquities were laid on him. And this is an important concept to grasp here, the, the concept of substitution. Now we're familiar with that in various areas. Uh, the pitcher starts off and uh, he gives up six runs in the first inning, so the coach very quickly makes uh, a substitution, brings in a relief pitcher to take over. Uh, ladies, you're making a, a cake and the recipe calls uh, for raisins and you look on your and your raisin jar is empty, and so you make a substitution. You put in cranberries instead of raisins. So we're, ide- we're familiar with the idea of substitution, aren't we? Uh, but here's a substitution in a different uh, sense. And the concept began with Jewish sacrifices. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament, and perhaps you can find a book like Leviticus, sometimes a bit tedious with all these various sacrifices, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the peace offerings and the sin offering and the trespass offering. And you sometimes wonder, what did all these different uh, sacrifices have to, to say to us? Well, we may not understand the differences between them that clearly in terms of perhaps a spiritual uh, indication. But one thing is clear, sacrifices were in that principle of substitution. It was a, a picture that the person that brought the sacrifice was a sinner. He was to lay his hands on the head of the animal, whether it was a sheep or a bull, whatever it might be, Uh, really indicating that his sins were transferred to the animal, then he had to kill the animal. And then the priest would deal with the the flesh and the the blood uh, and so on. But there's the principle of substitution. What the one who offered uh, those sacrifices was really saying, I'm the one that deserves to die. They may not have recognized that, but that's what the picture shows. I deserve to die, but this animal is my substitute. It dies in my place. It is killed in my stead. So that was the principle of uh, substitution there. And we have it in Isaiah 53 a number of times. In in verse 4 it seems to be saying how we viewed it, those who saw the cross, how they would view it. Uh, Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Uh, In other words, the impression there is that most people would assume he was dying for his own sins. He is being justly punished by God. But verse 3 makes it clear, doesn't it? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced, pierced literally with nails through his uh, hands and through his uh, feet. His side was 
uh, pierced. He was crushed, and he was indeed crushed in various ways even before he was crucified. But just as the piercing was for our transgressions, so the crushing is for our iniquities. Principle of substitution. And you see it at the end of verse 8. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Last phrase of verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. And again the last but one phrase of verse 12. He bore the sin of many. Principle of substitution. You get it clearly in 1 Peter 3.18 too. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ was righteous, but he suffered for the unrighteous. That's us. Substitution. That, it, that he might bring us to God. Men saw at best an innocent person dying unjustly. God saw him as a sin bearer, numbered with the transgressors, punished with the transgressors, punished as a transgressor. Now you might think that that sounds unjust, doesn't it? To take an innocent person and to punish him. Well, it might be unjust if it were not voluntary. Jesus did this voluntarily, laying down his life as a substitute. It wasn't that he was, uh, as it were, grabbed and put in that position against his will. Uh, No, he voluntarily offered himself as a sacrifice and as a, uh, a substitution. But we must imagine what it meant to Jesus to bear our sins. The Son of God, to bear our sins, to be, as this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, an amazing statement, he was made sin. wasn't made sinful, but he was made sin. And again, we have to see that as uh, the ultimate of uh, uh, imputation, our sins imputed to him. He was made sin and punished as a sinner. It's not surprising he shrank from that, is it? Uh, Maybe sometimes you uh, find it difficult when you read the account in Gethsemane. You're saying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of suffering that I'm about to drink. If it's possible, let it pass. And some reading that superficially might think, well, is he backing out uh, for what he came to do? He came into this world to to save sinners, to die on the cross, to give his life. And is he now trying to back out of that? But just consider what it would have meant to Jesus to bear the wrath of God. He'd known unbroken, loving communion with God for all eternity. And now he's suddenly to face the wrath of God poured out upon him. And I think something even worse, he is to be made sin. He who never committed one sinful act, who never uttered a single sinful word, who never had a single sinful thought, is now to be made sin. That must have been dreadful, mustn't it, to one who is utterly holy. And I say it's not surprising that he shrank from that in Gethsemane. But we should praise God there was a 
nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he knew, and the Father knew, that it was God's will that he should suffer, that he should bear the wrath of God, that he should be made sin, that he should be numbered with the transgressors and treated as a transgressor. It's an amazing thing that Jesus is willing to see that. Why did Jesus go through it? Why the nevertheless? Well, two reasons. To fulfill the divine plan to redeem, redeem fallen sinners. We must understand that after Adam and Eve were created and they sinned, they fell, uh, God wasn't taken by surprise. Uh, he was disappointed, in a sense, shocked, we might say that at the human level, uh, but he knew what was going to happen. And we read of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was in God's mind and God's plan to redeem those sinners that he knew would come. Created an innocent human race, but they fell and God knew that and Jesus knew what would happen. So that was an eternal divine plan to redeem, to rescue fallen humanity, sinful beings. So that plan had to be fulfilled and Jesus had to go through with that. But then, of course, there was love to his people. There was no other way to bring about salvation than going through his death, the cross. To deny that in any way was, was satanic thinking. Remember that incident when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to uh, be betrayed, he was going to die uh, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and Peter was shocked. He said, there's no way this is going to happen to you, Lord. And you remember Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't saying Peter was uh, demon-possessed. What he was saying is, that's satanic thinking to imagine that somehow the cross can be avoided. That Jesus can go through his ministry without dying. No, he had to die. And love for his people uh, demanded that he lay down his life. And also Jesus looked ahead and saw the trophies of grace that his death would bring. Uh, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. That's a difficult verse. Uh, the old King James uh, and the NIV footnote says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Jesus will realize that through his sufferings, through his death, through that travail, he'll be satisfied because many will be brought into the kingdom. Many will be redeemed by that blood that he shed. Many will be saved through the sufferings that he endured. And so he was willing uh, to go uh, through it. So he was numbered with the transgressors in his birth, in his life, and in his death. But what should be our response to this? We don't just read these things and say, well, that's nice, that's interesting, I'm glad that he was willing to go through it. What should be our response? Well, surely amazement. Why such love to sinners and making it personal. Why such love 
to me? Why was he willing to endure that to save a wretch like me? Uh, My sins crucified him. I was among those who rejected him, scorned him, cursed him. And yet the Lord was willing to lay down his life for such sinful people. That surely should amaze us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, not assured of that forgiveness of sins, that right relationship with God, just stop and think what it cost the Lord to redeem sinners and make salvation available to you. Uh, Will you still reject such love? Will you ignore such love? Uh, How we need to turn to the Lord. We need to repent. You children, boys and girls, some of you are uh, are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, uh, I need to grow up a bit. I need to get a bit older before I uh, give my life to the Lord. Well, why? If you understand these truths, you need to repent today. You need to turn to the Lord now. Don't listen to the gospel week after week and say, well, when I'm a bit older, I'll uh, do the right thing and trust in Jesus. No, now is the time. Why waste more years of your life? Uh, I wasn't converted till I was 19. Well, there's 18 and a half years of my life wasted. Uh, need to turn to the Lord as, as soon as possible, as young as possible. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because the older you get, the harder it will be to turn to the Lord. Our hearts get hardened in sin as we get older. And I know the Lord is able to save older people, but it's much easier in that sense to save those who are young. And if you're a Christian, if we are Christians, we should be so grateful for what the Lord has done. We, we take it for granted, do we not? If you'd once been drowning and someone had saved you, surely you would be eternally grateful, at least for a lifelong, wouldn't you? Grateful to that person uh, for saving you. So a program the other day when someone had a serious motorcycle accident and uh, received very rapid uh, treatment from the uh, whatever you call it, the medics there, not doctors, but the medics that help out and was flown in a a helicopter to get treatment and uh, he felt that saved his life. So he was so grateful uh, to that team of paramedics uh, that probably saved his life. And uh, how much more when our Saviour has delivered us from everlasting damnation shall we be grateful to the Lord and just rejoice in the Lord's mercy to us. Then our response surely should be to walk in holiness. One enlightened look at the cross shows us what God thinks of sin. Now we can look at the cross and say, well, that demonstrates the love of God to sinners, and truly it does, but it also demonstrates God's justice 
God's hatred of sin, that he poured out his wrath even on his own son as he bore the sins of his people. Are we going to trifle with those things that brought about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we relish those things that brought about his suffering? No, we need to realize how awful it is to continue in sin, to have a hatred of sin and seek to walk in holiness, lives pleasing to the Lord. Then we should recognize that we are his. The Lord has redeemed us. We're not our own. We're bought with a price, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 there. We're bought with a price. We're not our own to do our own thing. You know, when I buy something, whether it's a Bible or a car, whatever it is, it's mine. I can do what I like with it. Uh, and uh, it's supposed to do what, what I want, want it to do. Uh, we are not our own. We are bought with the blood of Christ. It was a price to purchase us for God. And therefore we ought to think of that. Uh, we've no right to do our own thing. We have to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live to please you day by day? We are redeemed with the blood of Christ. And then we ought to dwell upon these things. We need to be reminded of these things because so often and so easily do we forget these wonderful truths. You're probably thinking now, my, how wonderful that Jesus loved me enough to redeem me. Uh, but tomorrow you may have forgotten that. Uh, we need to be reminded of it over and over again. And the Lord has instituted a reminder for Saviour, and we ask as we come to the table, as we remember the Lord Jesus, that we might again be filled with love to him and gratitude for all that he has done for us. We pray in his name.